theyeshiva.net. Mrs. McDonald was a woman full of faith. And every afternoon, like clockwork, she walked out to her back porch and she began talking and praising God. You omnipotent one, you omniscient one, you king of kings, I could never thank you enough for all the grace, all the kindness, all the benevolence you bestow upon my life. And she would go on and on for a half an hour praising the Lord. Her neighbor, her next door neighbor, was a sworn atheist. And he believed in his atheism as much as she believed in her religion. So when she would finish her 30 minutes of praise to the Lord, angrily he would scream, There is no such a thing. Forget your myth. There's no God. Every day this fight happened again and again. She went out. Lord, Lord, I can't thank you enough. And he would start hollering. You're delusional. This doesn't exist. It's a pure myth. One day, her neighbor goes out in the afternoon to enjoy his daily routine, his own religion, which is to attack her faith. She's not there. She's not there. The next day she's not there. Third day, fourth day. After four days, she comes out in the afternoon and she's holding a cane, clutching her cane. She looks weak and frail and sick. And in a much... customers. They'll never ever listen. Certainly not to a rabbi. There's only one Navi they listen to in the whole Tanakh, Yoyna, because he spoke to Goyim. <laughs> she comes out, she's sick, she's weak, she's frail, and in a weak voice she turns to Hashem and she says, Lord, Lord, I, my refrigerator is empty, my pantries are empty, I'm almost left with no food in the house. I'm weak and I'm sick. Please, Lord, my God, my Savior, my salvation, my life, my soul, bring me some food, bring me some food. And when the atheist hears this, he says to himself, Ah, at last, at last, I will knock some common sense into this lady's head. He goes to the grocery, he shops, And he brings four huge grocery packages to her home. He puts it right in front of the door and he leaves. Sure enough, an hour later, she's out on the porch. My sweetie Lord, my sweetie Lord, you're the best. You're the sweetest. I was sick and tired. Look what you did. You delivered four packages of food to my doorstep. He comes out on the porch. She says, at last. You could see how foolish you are. I'm the one who did it. Look at the receipt inside. I'm the one who brought 
you the groceries, I went shopping, I delivered to you, forget your nonsense about this deity that you believe in. She looks at him and then she looks up to heaven and she says, Oh Lord, I can't believe how awesome you are. Not only did you get me all this food, but you made sure that it was delivered through the devil himself. (laughs) That's one anecdote. Now a story, not an anecdote. There was a Jew from Galicia. His name was Isidore Rabi. Isidore Rabi won the Nobel Prize for physics. He was a well-known physicist and scientist. He passed away, he died in 1988. Isidore Rabi was once interviewed, and this is what he said, I quote, My mother is the one who made me a scientist without ever intending to. You see, every other Jewish mother in Brooklyn would ask her child after school, So, did you learn anything today? Every father asked the same question. So tell me what you learned in yeshiva today. But not my mother. Izzy, she would say every day when I came home from school. Did you ask a good question today? The difference asking good questions made me a scientist. She was not interested in what I learned. All she was interested was if I asked a good question. Every development in science, in physics, in medicine, really in any arena of human development, comes through questions. People who do not take the status quo as absolute, but they challenge, they ask, they're curious, and because of his mother's question, he said, this made me a scientist. Which brings us right directly to our theme this evening. Why do I believe? Anima amin, emuna, faith, belief. Why do I believe? Why should I believe? Why would anybody believe in anything? Memonavshech, as they would say in yeshiva. Any way you look at it, it seems absurd to believe. If it's logical, if what you believe in makes sense, if it's rational, if the rational mind justifies it or proves it or demonstrates it, you don't need faith, you don't have to believe. If it's illogical, if it's senseless, certainly if it's absurd, why should I believe something? It seems that to the rational person, to a person who has a mind and has been blessed with a mind, there's really no room for faith. If it makes sense, you don't need faith. If it doesn't make sense, why do you accept it? So you might say, you believe me, because I or your father or your grandmother or your great-grandfather or the book or the author or the rabbi or the sage or the leader or whoever the person is, told you so, you believe that person. But one second, does that make sense? If it makes sense to believe that person for whatever reason, then it's not faith. You don't need faith. It's logical to believe the person. If somebody comes in right now and tells me, right, Jacob was in, it just started raining. If this person is not known as a lawyer who likes inventing stories, it makes sense to believe him. It's not uh, irrational to believe him. And if it really doesn't make sense to believe this person, So then again, why should I believe this person just because he or she told me to believe so? 
So I once asked somebody this question, and he told me something that I think uh, should have disturbed him, but it disturbed me more than him, (laughs) for perhaps obvious reasons. He told me, that's exactly what faith means. That's exactly what, what faith means. Doesn't make sense to believe it, and yet I believe it. So I said, are you telling me that you believe it even though it's not true? (laughs) Even though you think it's not true, rationally you think it's untrue, you still believe it. Is that what it is? He said, perhaps. Oy vavoy. Woe unto us if that is the definition of faith. I know it's not true, but I say I believe it or I tell myself, or I tell other people I believe it, even though I have no reason to believe it. So now let's take Judaism. Let's take Torah. This is about any issue. Let's take Yadis, let's take Yiddishkeit. There are what we call Yisoydis HaMuna of Yiddishkeit. The foundations of what we call Jewish faith, Jewish belief. The Rambam defined them as 13 principles, Yud Gimel Ikrim. Many argue with the Rambam. Some don't know, but there's many Rishonim who argue with the Rambam. There's a whole book called Sefer Ikrim, who doesn't believe that these are the 13 fundamental principles. He has three principles of faith. But whatever those principles are, why do I believe them? If they make sense, if they're rational, I don't need faith. I use my mind. If they don't make sense, and in fact... They defy logic, or at least I can't prove them even if they don't defy logic, so why am I accepting it? So you might say, because your parents told you to believe it, or this is what you saw in a work, or this is what you were taught in school. But is it logical to believe it for that reason? And what if somebody grows up with parents or in a school where they didn't teach them to believe it? Would he believe it? And what if you would have grown up in another community? If you would have grown up in another family where they didn't teach you these things? Would there be even the slightest chance that you would accept them? In other words, let's understand something. We are dealing here with the most important question of life, perhaps. And that is, what is truth? What is the truth of life? I don't know if there's any other question that's more important than this. Who are we? What are we? Why are we? Does our existence have purpose? What that purpose is? Is there a truth behind existence? Is there meaning to existence? These are some of the most important, if not the most important questions of life. One cannot just shirk away these questions unless they don't think or they don't care without a serious consideration of asking this fundamental question. What is the basis of my faith? And if it's logical, I don't need faith. And if it's not logical, why do I accept it? And what happens if I would have been in another community growing up in another environment like so many other people? Is it that my the ultimate truths of life are completely dependent on the circumstances in which you grew up. And if you would have been with other people, there's no way you would have accepted this because it's not rational. It's just you choose to follow tradition. If you would have been in another tradition, there would have been another tradition. December 25th is celebrated by billions of people in a very different way than coming to 18 Forche and eating Cholent and discussing the basics of Emuna. And with all due respect to the Kanayan Hara, dozens or hundreds of people who are here, 
We don't number in the billions. So what is really the basis? What is really the basis? A, a boy, a teenager came to my office some time ago, and he said, I have a simple question. There are seven billion, I told you the question, there are seven billion people in the world. There are two and a half billion Christians. There are 1.6 million Muslims. There are 14 million Jews. That's less than a quarter of 1% of human civilization. You got that? Okay. Or it's basically less than an error on a Chinese census and statistic. Among these 14 or 15 million Jews, there is a small percentage, a very small percentage, that maintain that they adhere and accept the basics of what we call emunah, the yudgimalikrim, teirah, mitzvahs, and so on and so forth. So he says, explain to me rationally why I should believe that 7 billion are wrong and the small, small, small minority are right. Never mind, he got thrown out of yeshiva for this question. Now, I don't know why. I think it's a valid question from an intelligent young man. He wants to know. He's curious. It's a good question. Is it possible that some of us use the word emuna in order to ignore any question? I have emuna. What does it mean, emuna? Explain to me in English what it means. I have a Muna. Explain to me what you mean you have a Muna. Do you have a Muna that I'm speaking to you right now? Do you have a Muna? Do you believe with complete faith that I'm speaking to you right now? Do you have a Muna that there's cholent and it smells in the room? Do you have a Muna? You don't need a Muna, you need a nose. And you don't need a Muna that I'm speaking to you, you need eyes. <laughs> or ears, yes, ears. Good point. You see the mic, you hear the voice. I think it's quite vital to state today, especially in our generation and in our times, a truth that I don't think any Jewish sage or rabbi or God will be Israel from Avram Avinu till this very day would disagree with to the contrary. And that is Judaism has never and will never be afraid of any question in the world for one simple reason. When you have the answer... You're not afraid of the question. <coughs> Furthermore, Judaism believes that if you have, send them my regards. Judaism believes that if you have a question, it's good to ask. It's important to ask. You know why? If you don't ask, it's not going to disappear. So it's going to sit there and it may haunt you. It's a good thing to ask a question. <laughs> that if I have a question... I make believe it doesn't exist and I repress it. That's not a way of dealing with it. Ask. If you don't have, you don't have. But if you have, ask. It's good. It's healthy. It's important. It's spiritual. It's religious. God is not afraid of your questions. Furthermore, Judaism welcomes human inquiry, human curiosity. There is no religion, faith, history in the world that has elevated the status of the human mind as a gift of the Rebbein Shalom like Yiddishkeit. There's no religion in the world that made it a mitzvah of a hagisa boyoyimam valayla 
And even if you know kol ha-Torah, kula, like the Gemara says in Menachas, theoretically you know the whole Torah, there's still a mitzvah to learn, to use, to cherish that mind, to deeper and have it grow to greater and greater and greater heights. On the contrary, somebody who asks questions, I believe it demonstrates, number one, he or she cares. People who don't ask is for three reasons. Either they have a lofty soul, a lofty neshama. That's an option. Number two, they don't think, which is a wonderful thing perhaps. But it shouldn't be turned into the pinnacle of life. They don't think, that's fine, it's fine. It's a wonderful thing for some people. But it doesn't mean it's the ultimate spiritual experience, not to think. Some people, they don't have questions, you know why? They don't care. As long as the jalapeno herring is good, why should I challenge the institution of Shabbos? As long as the Yerushalmi Kugel is keeping me healthy and strong, should I really have an issue with Shabbos? Somebody once told me, he says, I used to be an atheist, but I stopped. I said, why? He says, they don't have any holidays. <laughs> I get that. I get that. It's called comfort, enjoyment, pleasure. Some people don't ask out of fear, which is all understandable. We're all human. These are all human emotions. So those are different reasons. But if somebody is not afraid, and somebody does care, and somebody does have a mind, and they ask questions, they shouldn't be mocked, denigrated, made fun of. On the contrary, embraced, welcomed, appreciated, and enter into a constructive, healthy, honest, and real dialogue, because they're searching for the truth. And this is a truth, as I mentioned, it's dealing with the fundamental question of what is life and what's the meaning of life. That's what the basics of Jewish Amuna deal with. What is life and what is its meaning? Does it have a meaning? May I embossa la'anata ha'ilach. So, we have an important question in front of us. What is... What is a muna? Why is anybody believing? Why should anybody believe? I don't know why I should believe. In the next weeks, Be'ezer Hashem, next Thursday, Thursday after, we're going to explore some, some of the fundamental ideas of Judaism from a rational point of view, from what we call a seicheldika point of view. Whether it's the issue, the existence of the Creator, the truth of the Jewish religion, Torah Menashemayim, which many of you have emailed questions about, or people who are not here, um, and I, I received all of the questions. You could send in your questions to Amuna at the yeshiva.net, or you could write them on one of the index cards. And believe Neda, I'll try to address as many questions as I can. Here, tonight, our question is, what is the role, what is the meaning of Amuna, of faith, of belief in Yiddishkeit? Or to put it in simple words, is Amuna for weak people? Or is it also for strong people? Is Amuna for people that don't think? Or is it also for thoughtful and rational people? Is Amuna made for children who are not used to challenging what their parents teach them? So just believe what I say. Or is Amuna also for people who actually choose and think and consider different options? Or if you want to put it in simple words, is Amuna inferior to intellect? 
or is amuna above intellect? Or as it says in some svarim, is amuna lamata mehaseichel? Is it below rationality? Below reason? Is faith inferior to reason? Reason is, of course, the best way of dealing with everything. Imagine how you run your business. If I tell you you should invest money in my business, how much? Three and a half million dollars. When the banks open on Monday, and you say, why should I invest money in your business? And I'm going to tell you, faith. Faith. Every Jew screams a munna, will laugh. Show me, show me numbers, demonstrate credibility, give me references, let me hear a history. This is reasonable. Let me see where your business is going, who am I dealing with? When it comes to things that are more important than business, far more important than business, because money is very important. I don't, want to, I don't mean to, to be at Mavatul Khalil Vachas. But it comes and it goes. Yeah, once said, Geld Kimt and Geld Gate, if you lost money, you lost nothing. And then he said, and if somebody lost Khalila their health, they lost half of their life. They lost their body, but not their soul. But if somebody loses courage, mut, they lost everything. So when it comes to the fundamental question in life, what happened to the courage? Here suddenly faith becomes a substitute for everything. Isn't that a very weak, weak type of faith? Indeed, Rabbi Isai, there are two amunas. There is a muna that is inferior to seichel, meaning... I believe simply because I didn't think about it. I don't care too much. I'm afraid. It's just easier. I accept it. Whatever it is, I repress it. Obviously, that is a weak form of faith. But we want to address what Amuna really is. Did Avramavino have Amuna? Did Moshe Rabbeinu have Amuna? Did the Rambam have Amuna? Did Rabbi Akiva have Amuna? Did Reb Sadiagon, the Rajben, the Ramban, and Rabbeinu Yoyna have a Muna? Did Beis Yosef and the Arizal have a Muna? Did the Balshemtiv and the Vilna Gon have a Muna? Or, if it made sense, if it was reasonable, there's no need for faith. Reason is far better. So here is the best definition of a Muna that I've ever heard. The best definition of a Muna, I'll say it in Yiddish and then I'll translate it. Emune is azazach, was akasha macht es nit schwacher, und ateretz macht es nit starker. Emune is a type of experience which a question will not weaken, and an answer will not strengthen. That is the definition of emune in Teres Anister, in Kabbalah, and in Chassidus. But what does that mean? How can one even say that? Emunah is something that a question will not make it weaker. If I say I believe, and then you come and you challenge me with a serious question, of course it will rattle, it will shake up my faith. And then if somebody comes and no, no, don't worry, I have a great answer, and you answer, it will strengthen my emunah. If that's your understanding of emunah, it means you're not tuning into what emunah is. You're tuning into what we call emunah, which is blind faith, a leap of faith, emunah that is inferior to reason, emunah that is lower than seichel and rationality. 
when you talk about the authentic experience of emuna in Yiddishkeit, we are dealing with an emuna that transcends, it doesn't negate, it transcends reason. Faith that's above reason, not below reason. So a question doesn't make it weaker. But what does this mean? How can a question not make it weaker? If I'm convinced in something reasonably, and then you ask me a good question, you're learning a shtikl gemari, you have pshat, and somebody comes up with a great question, it shakes up your pshat, you say, I'm wrong, we need a new pshat. That's how, that's how an exchange works. Certainly with fundamentals of life as well. You had a belief, I shook it, I, 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 I destroyed it, or somebody destroyed it, now let's find another belief. That's not a muna, that's something else. So here's a parable. There was a fisherman who uh, decided to discover how many fish really exist on earth and how many species of fish are there. And so the story goes, he built himself this huge nut and he lowered it one day into the Pacific and he left it there for a long duration of time. And then he lifted up his net and indeed he had in this huge gigantic net, thousands and thousands and thousands of species of fish. And he came out with a declaration to the world. There is no fish in the Pacific Ocean that is smaller than seven inches. He became the laughing stock of any normal intelligent person. In your own dining room, you have a tank with goldfish that are smaller than seven inches. What was the problem? The problem was the holes in the net. Each hole was seven inches. The fisherman wasn't lying. He was very honest. He wasn't biased. He wasn't distorted. He wasn't concocting a story. He didn't have any agenda. He was really honest. But the tools that he was using to define reality they were what determined reality. The tools we use to define reality will determine the nature of that reality. But most of us never bother to go visit the very tools and instruments we're using to decide things. We have a net, and the net is how we define reality. But do you ever think what your net looks like? And maybe the holes will not allow you ever to know that there was a reality smaller than seven inches. This was a parable that was sent from one physicist to another physicist, I believe from Heisenberg to Einstein, to explain to him the fallacy of Einstein who did not believe believe in what they call today quantum mechanics. Saying God doesn't play dice with the universe, but I believe it's a very potent and insightful parable to help us understand the point. Reason. What is reason? Reason. (laughs) Seichel. That's that's a tough question to answer. What is reason? I'm not sure. What is reasonable? I don't know. What for one person is reasonable, for other person absurdity. We know that. But on some level, let's use the Maharal's definition. Seichel. What we call Seichel. What is Seichel? What is its MO? Its motus operandi? What is its mission statement? It is the ability that we have to be able to explain things rationally. To be able to identify patterns, sequences, 
causes, effects, reasons, explanations, to deduce new things, to refute old ideas, explain things, prove things. Something that is not logical. Something that does not fit into the world of logic. Reason here doesn't have the holes in its net to be able to grasp it or to explain it. You go to the airport and you go through a metal detector. The metal detector can detect if you have a knife or if you took orange juice, Khalila, into your carry-on. The other machines will detect it. The metal detector will detect any metal you have. It's a gun, a knife, a scissor, etc. Will the metal detector also detect your emotions? You're angry at your husband because he left late to the airport. You're angry at this one. You're nervous. You're anxious. You're afraid of flying. This the metal detector will not detect. Why not? The answer is very simple. The holes in the net. The metal detector can detect metal. It cannot detect if I'm happy or I'm sad. For that, I have to go to my wife. (laughs) She'll detect it immediately. Even if you don't know, she knows. She may not detect the metal, but she'll detect the mood. As the Chayvah Salavavis puts in a beautiful expression, Kol chush toifes michushoy. Every chush, every sense, grasps that which it is a vessel for, that which it could contain. A hole of seven inches can hold a fish that's eight inches, or seven inches plus. It cannot contain a fish that's six inches, it's going to go through the cracks, go through the holes. We all understand that. Hashem, God, this existence we call God, created intellect. So godliness and God transcend intellect. It's beyond intellect. So your mind, your reasoning, your brain can perhaps prove that God exists. But the experience of God, to detect God, would be like asking the metal detector to detect emotions. How can rationality, even sophisticated, brilliant, detect, experience, sense, feel that which created it and that which is completely beyond it? Some of you like cartoons. Cartoons are made by men. But the first cartoon has not been made by a cartoon. It's been made by a person who made a cartoon. The author of intellect is not defined by intellect, by logic. So the mind is the ability to analyze things, to understand things, to prove things. Tremendous, powerful, glorious, wonderful. But it's holes have certain sizes, certain dimensions. Seichel is a definition. It represents something. The ability to put things in a box of reason, of logic. Mathematics, that's where reason plays a significant role. It can understand a mathematical equation. It can understand a logical idea. It can understand... It can, it can understand... It could understand proofs, contradictions, patterns, sequences. It cannot understand, comprehend, and experience the reality of godliness, which is not made according to the holes of the net of Seichel. And there are two details here, two aspects here. Number one, even if reason can prove, and it can prove, that God exists, 
It has no way of experiencing that reality. It can talk about the fact that when you study X, Y, and Z, you need to deduce that there is an author, there is a creator, there is a cause. But what is that cause? What is it? Experiencing it? That reason doesn't have a power to do. Number two, number two, even if it can prove that there is an existence of a creator, all it can reach is the creator as much as logic dictates that he exists. But those elements of the creator that are completely beyond logic and logic doesn't even know anything about them because they're not deduced from the existence of the world. Here, reason says, I'm sorry, but the net doesn't have these holes that can capture this reality. Here is where Emunah comes in. Never to substitute reason. Never to replace rationality. On the contrary, embrace your mind. Cherish your mind. Use your mind. Inquire with your mind. Think with your mind. And your mind, if used properly, without bias, without agendas, with a dedication to the search for truth, will bring you and bring us and bring humanity to great heights. But at some point, your mind, your honest mind turns to you and said, says, we have reached the door. I can take you till this door. But if you want to cross the miftan hadelas, if the wills that began the shvel from them tear, vizakman shvel of English. Huh? If you want to cross this threshold, here the Seichel says, I cannot take you past the threshold. Not because I'm afraid. Not because I'm insecure. Not because I love repression. But because I am what I am. So I can take you to great places, but I have the limits based on my definition, on my identity, not fear. I bring you till the door. Now what happens if you want to cross this threshold and go into another place? Here is where Amuna enters the scene of Judaism. Amuna begins where reason ends. Doesn't replace reason. Doesn't run away from reason, doesn't compete with reason. In fact, if something is true, true reason will not contradict it. True reason will never be able to prove that it's not true, because if it's really true, if it's really, really true, it won't be contradicted. Reason can understand some things and not understand other things, like quantum mechanics, like paradoxes. Stephen Hawkins is a great physicist and he said, I read, he said that when somebody talks to me about quantum mechanics, I open my drawer to take out my gun. Basically, I can't deal with it. Reason must admit humility, limitation. But truth is never afraid of reason. But reason acknowledges the holes in the net. I'm limited. And this is where emuna comes in. What then is emuna? What is emuna? What is it? Here is the definition. Faith is that dimension of the self which, when cultivated, allows us to experience ultimate reality, the divine reality. You got that? Faith is that dimension of the self that, when cultivated, allows us to experience ultimate reality, the divine reality. We have five senses. We all know it. We have the sense of sight. We have the ability to hear. We have the sense of smell, touch, and taste. 
each of these senses can grasp a different type of reality. If somebody, heaven forbid, is blind, and you take them to the Louvre, you take them to the most beautiful art gallery, it will really not be very inspiring, because the way to appreciate art is through your sense of sight. On the contrary, conversely, if somebody is sadly deaf, and you take them to the most heavenly concert in the world, and you expect them to enjoy it and appreciate, it's quite unfair, because the sense of music, the reality of music, can be detected and sensed by the chushashmir, even if they have great eyesight. If somebody is at a wedding, and they see people jumping and dancing, and kazatskis, and it's lebedic, but the person cannot hear their music because the ears are plugged, and they see everybody dancing, well, what does it look like? It looks like hamashagayim hoist. Because all I see is people jumping and dancing and I don't hear the music. I don't have the sense that can grasp music. Some of us lack a sense of smell and we can enter into a place with the greatest perfumes and the greatest psalm and it means absolutely nothing. There's no way from looking at a piece of chicken unless you see the smoke knowing whether it's hot or cold. For this you have to touch it and you have to taste it. So every sense has its ability to grasp certain aspects of reality and not other aspects of reality. Those are the five senses. If my eyes are closed, I can't see art. If my ears are plugged, I cannot hear music. There is a sixth sense. And this is what we want to grasp tonight. There is a sixth sense. Its name, its name, Emuna. You see with your eyes, you hear with your ears, you smell with your nose, you taste with your mouth, you touch with your fingers or other parts of your body. There is a sixth sense. This is the sense called emuna. It's not the eyes of the body, it's the eyes of the soul. It's the sense that allows the soul to detect, to experience, to see, to feel, to live with the divine, with elikus with the transcendent, with pure godliness. What is more, the soul is a chelek eleka mimal mamish, meaning it's a fragment of the divine, it's a piece of the divine, so it not only sees, it is it. It experiences the divine like it experiences its own core. They tell a story, I guess it's an anecdote. There was an old, an altayid who decided at one point of his life he's going to become sophisticated. So for his 80th birthday, he went to the New York Opera. So he's sitting there, and the great opera singer gets up, and he says, I'm going to do a rendition of Psalm chapter 23, which is of course, Mizmar Ladavid, Hashem Roi Loyechzer, or the English translation, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And this opera singer does a rendition, zu singen und zu sagen impeccable, flawless, the tone, the power, the beauty. It was awe-inspiring. He finishes, and he gets a standing ovation. The old 80-year-old Jew, it didn't feel right. It wasn't his grandmother's Tehillim. He raises his hand and he says, Mr. Pavarotti, do you mind if I do my rendition of Psalm 23? Go ahead, my dear Yidala. He gets up and he starts saying to Hillim, Psalm Chav Gimel. One problem, he barely knows English. 
He can't carry a tune. Very unappealing to the ear. But you know what? His neshama is in his psalm. And he starts saying it with every fiber of his being. With every, with every sinew of his soul. Every chord of his soul. And people see it, hear it, and they start crying. They start crying. The Lord is my shepherd. They start weeping. He finishes. People are wiping, wiping their eyes. Pavarotti gets up, he says, I am completely confused. I did a rendition. Perfect on every level. I knew the words. I knew the song. I knew the tune. Nobody shed a tear. A standing ovation I got. But uh, a tear nobody shed. You, a horrible voice. A flawed rendition. And people were crying. Why? The Jew looks at him and he says, Mr. Pavarotti, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. That's emuna. It's not afraid of reason. It is an experience that reason cannot take a person to. Reason is a blessed gift and a phenomenon which we should never waste, chalila, or discourage. That is why emuna is something that a question will not weaken and an answer will not strengthen. If I see you right here in front of me tonight, and then tomorrow morning I tell your brother, oh, regards from your brother, I saw him last night. And he says, it can't be. I'll prove it to you that he's in Australia. He's in Melbourne, Australia. And he proves it to me. He has documentation. He proves it to me. I'll show you the ticket. I'll show you the boarding pass. I'll I'll show you pictures. Will it weaken my awareness that you were here at the Shear the night before? No, not because his questions are not good. The questions may be good. I have an answer. I don't have an answer. But because I saw him. Of course I can assume that I'm having optical illusions. I'm over bottle. Excluding that assumption, which is a possibility. <laughs> At some point in life, you have to include that in the possibility. But it's not going to weaken it. Now you're going to come oh, and say, Oh, Rabbi Jacob said, The man asked you a question that this guy couldn't be here. You have an answer. Your answer is not going to strengthen it. Just like your quest, his question didn't weaken it. Why? It's not on the same playing field. Not that the question and answer is not valid. The question is a question. The answer is an answer. It should be discussed. It could be discussed. It's not competing. It's a different experience. I saw this person. Because I saw this person, I know that this person is here. Maybe I'll have a question. Maybe not. Now, it's very possible that my ears should be plugged. It's possible that my eyes height should be blocked. And it's possible that I shouldn't feel my sense of smell because my nose are plugged off for whatever reason. And the same is true with emuna. It's a sense and the sense can be plugged. It can be stopped. It could be stopped. Indeed, the word emuna has another meaning to it. We say faith, but emuna also comes from the word imun. What does imun imunim mean in Lashon Kodesh in Hebrew? One meaning, trust, and another meaning, exercise. 
Training is called Talech Lasot Imunim. Exercise, training. Exercise, any type of exercise. Any type of training in every field is called to do imunim. Whether it's athleticism, whether it's for the army, whether it's for dancing or writing or speaking or running. What's the connection? What's the connection? I may have an extraordinary talent to dance, to write, to communicate, to play football, to run the marathon. But if I get no training, if nobody teaches me how to throw a ball, how to dance, how to write, how to communicate, the talent is there. The skill is there. The sense is there. The ability is there. But it remains uncultivated, underdeveloped. I may not even know I have it. And then somebody identifies it in me. Rabbi Akiva was a 40-year-old, poor shepherd. He thought he was an ignorant man. And a young woman, Rachel, identified that he's the God Hadar. He's going to save the Jewish world. He didn't know it. She said, I'll marry you, but you got to go to yeshiva for 12 years. At the end, Rabbi Akiva says, everything I have is hers. She identified it. Emuna means faith, but emuna is also training. It's a skill. I need to cultivate it. I need to expose myself to it. I need to find out. I need to be able to see it. I have to open my eyes. I have to open my ears. Now we understand what is probably one of the most strange madrashim. And that is, there's a verse that is common sense. Shloima Melech says in Proverbs 14, Mishlei, Pesi Yamin Lechol Davav Arum Davar Arum Yavin Davar Lashurai. A fool believes everything. That's why he's a fool. A smart person, a clever man, seeks to understand. It seems that Shloima Melech is completely mocking the whole institution of Emuna. It's for fools. If you can't use your mind, you believe, you trust. If you have a mind, ask, reason. Granted, I get that. In Medrash Rabbah, Parsha Shmois, Parsha Gimel, the Pasuk says, who does this, the Medrash says, who does this Pasuk refer to? Pesayam and the Davar, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. He's the pride, he didn't even have to believe. He's the one who didn't have to believe. The only one who didn't have to believe. What does this mean? How does one explain this? By Hasidim, there's a story about the Baal Shem Tev, that at the end of his life, what did he say? You remember the expression of the Baal Shem Tev? Ich bin anar und ich gloib. Anar means I'm a fool, I'm a pessie, and I believe. What is he saying? Why? Ich bin anar und ich gloib. The answer is in Tanya chapter 18. Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liyad Balatanya says this. Legabe HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The lace machshavet fisabe klal hakoil kipsoyim etzlo yizborach. Here, a fool is not a negative connotation. It depends what you're talking about. If you're hearing a shear and the teacher is explaining it and he says, Fashtest. So, what happens in yeshiva when he says, Fashtest? So, if you're honest, you say, Of course not. You don't know how to explain this for your life. That you don't say. Or you just nod with your head. Or, as a Talmud, a student once told me in Yeshiva, he said, Rabbi Jacobson, I trust you! <laughs> and he thought I would appreciate it. He said, I trust you that the Gemara knows what it's talking about. I said, Oy vavoy! What a horrible teacher I am. Do me a favor, don't trust me. The whole basis of learning is trying to understand. I have to understand. 
because it's a logic that I could understand. But when you're dealing with Elokos, with divinity, with the reality of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is absolutely undefined and transcendent, it's the core and source of all reality. Oh, as the Zoyer says, no thought, even the most elevated, refined, sophisticated, brilliant, gigantic thought can grasp it because the holes in the net are seven inches. Not because you're doing anything wrong, but because simply it's Seichel. And Seichel has its limitations, not because it's insecure, but simply because it's a created reality, albeit it's such an important reality. So Moshe Rabbeinu was proud. He got it. Of course, he was the one who appreciated this more than anybody else. Because if you don't understand a lot, so you think, if I would have a better brain, I would be able to understand more. But the more you understand, the more you learn how much you don't understand. And the more you understand, the more you can appreciate infinity. Because you see how much you understand and how distanced it is. So it's Moshe. And similarly, the Baal Shem Tev who says, Ich bin anar und ich These are the eyes of the soul. That grasps, experiences, sees, is really one with the reality of the divine. Reason can prove there is a God, but reason can't grasp God. Reason can't bring God into my soul. Reason can't experience God. Reason can tell me, analyze the tomato, there has to be a God. Analyze the Big Bang, they gotta be a God. Analyze the DNA, they gotta be a God. Study your genome or your cell, they gotta be a God. But what is God? The experience of it, the sense of it. That, Seichel says, I don't know, I'm sorry. I can bring you till here. My job ended. I work from nine to five, sorry. My job ended. You wanna cross the threshold into the experience of Alakus? And Muna says, let me take over. You did your job, I graduate, and now you go to the next level. In addition to that, Seichel can never take you to a place of God that is beyond what the universe can prove through logical deductions. It can only prove as much as reason can prove based on its analysis. That which it can't analyze, or that which is not subjected to analysis, or that element of divinity which is not defined by creation, there Seichel says, I'm sorry, I have nothing to do. Here is where emuna comes in to it. That's why there's an expression, emuna tahira. What does emuna tahira mean? Reine emine. What does reine emine mean? Huh? So people think reine emine means, that what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Any other definition for Rainamina? No questions. What if I have questions? Can I have Rainamina? Of course not. Ich bin nicht rein, ich bin tome. I'm contaminated. That's not really what Rainamuna means. On the contrary, that's a Muna that is afraid. That's a Muna that's insecure. Rainamuna could be somebody who uses their mind a lot, and they appreciate questions and inquiries, and they may have to deal with questions. Reina Muna means, to quote a great chassid of a previous generation, Sinisht farpachket mitzeichel anushi. Sinisht farpachket mitzeichel anushi. 
It allows the Jew the pure experience, undiluted, of godliness in its full purity, in its full transcendence, where reason doesn't dilute it, doesn't compromise its truth and its intensity, not because he doesn't have a mind or doesn't use it or because she ignores it or is afraid of it, because this person is open to that sixth sense without the need to navigate it, dilute it, and control it. You know the Maisa they say about Henry Finkelstein? Basically the Maisa. Henry Finkelstein saw that if you want to be up and coming, you have to have art in your house. You know those people who think that they have to buy art simply so they could say that they have art in their home. It's completely shaloy l'shma. <laughs> so, but there's art and there's modern art. You're familiar with modern art? Modern art is a whole different genre. So he goes into lower Manhattan, right? To the village or Soho. He's looking for a store where they sell modern art. And he looks at a piece of art and he basically sees a yellow line on top, a red line on the bottom, a few dots in the middle, another circle here, another triangle here, another form here. How much is this? Oh, this is $7 million. He says, $7 million? My baby can do this. You idiot, you never had an education, this is modern art, it's symbolic, it's mythical, it represents abstract ideas. Ops, dishes out to seven million dollars, buys himself the modern art, hangs it in his dining room, and when the guests come, wow, wow, how sophisticated, amazing. The next year he comes back for his birthday, he needs a new piece of modern art. Now he sees one, two lines on the right, two lines on the left. Chassal said the Pesach, how much is this? $20 million. He says, what's this? There's nothing here. He says, that's modern art. It represents undefined secrets of the universe that can't be articulated, even in the strokes of a pen. $20 million, he takes it home. The next year he comes back, after his friends are praising him, comes back the next year, and he sees canvas, huge, blank completely. There's one tiny little dot inside. He asked the guy, how much is this? He says, $60 million. You want to take it? He says, no, 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 no. He says, why not? He says, it's too pachket. <laughs> it's too messy. It's too messy. Emunah Tahir is the pshat sinisht fapachket. Not because Seichel is bad. Seichel is beautiful, but it has its limits. Atkan Tchum Shabbos. Nobody cherishes reason as much as Judaism. But Judaism also tells you it has its limits. Take it to its limits! And then take it more and take it more! The Gemara says at the end of Brachas. But it has its limits. And it cannot detect the purity, the infinity, the grandeur, and the majesty of pure alakus, of a real intimate experience, that the person has, that the person has uh, with Hashem. So somebody came to the briskerov. Now here's a classic briskerov art. And he asked the briskerov a question which somebody asked me last week after the fear, this question. He asked the brisker of, this is Revelvola Brisker, Rebitzchok Zeev Halevi Soloveitchik. 
Reb Velvel Abrisker, Reb Chaim's son, the Beis HaLevi's grandson. And he says, Rebbe, I have a question. Is there going to be a Muna when Mashiach comes? What's his question? Faith means, I believe. I believe if... I can't prove it. I can't see it. When Mashiach comes, it says, Will there be a concept of Emunah after Mashiach comes? What did the Briskerov answer? The Briskerov answered these words. Yeah. The man says, how? He says, Emunah is a mitzvah. Una mitzvah bites sich nicht. And if you know a little bit about the briskerov, you can hear him. Emunah is a mitzvah. A mitzvah is eternal. It's one of the fundamentals of faith. Torah and mitzvahs will not change. There will always be a tefillin. There will always be a Shabbos. There will always, Emunah is a mitzvah. A mitzvah doesn't change. So it's good and brisk. But now I want to ask the briskerov, but how does it work? I get it. It's a mitzvah. A mitzvah doesn't change. But what's the mitzvah? Believe that there's a mic. Believe that it's Thursday night. Believe that I'm in a tent. What's the mitzvah? So for this I need a tropping of, uh, of Kabbalah and Chesidus. So in Lekut HaTorah, in the Maim of Eschan, and the Yadaita, Yoyim Vashavayisa, Levavecha. In Lekut HaTorah, he says, Emunah will be when Mashiach comes. Why? Because Emunah and reason, faith and reason, are never absolutes. What I believe today, I might know tomorrow. And what I know tomorrow, I will believe after tomorrow. Because belief is not inferior to reason. It's that which my reason cannot grasp, and my reason can grow. My net can develop. What you understand, I may have to believe in. Or I may believe in, I should say, not have to believe in. So when Mashiach comes, I will know a lot more. But there will still be a munah, because infinity is infinite, it never ends. And even that which I can understand still has a munah, because knowledge and a munah are not on the same playing field. So I could know it, but a munah still plays a role. So now I come to answering one of the questions, a few of the emails that we got. So here's the question, and it's a question that comes up very often. A bacher, a younger man, a young woman, a young girl, a young man, whatever, whoever it is, comes in and says, Rabbi, I have sveikas in emunah. I have doubts in emunah. I have doubts in faith. How do we respond to this? Your child tells you, I have sveikas in emunah. I'm not sure. It's good for you, it's not for me, prove it, doesn't make sense to me. My friends, look what's going on. And today the exposure is such that people often can hear questions they may have not even thought of themselves. What's the mahalach? There's two approaches that I have seen. One approach is, you have sveikas in amuna. The way to deal with it is, don't talk. Don't talk to anybody about it. It can ruin the shidduchim of you, your sisters, your brothers. It can ruin parnosa or ruin the family history. Just don't talk. If you really, really have to talk, become a breslover, go to tzvaz, go to the forest, and talk to God or talk to the trees. But not around here. Or maybe around here, yeah. 
<laughs> Sometimes our youth has doubts, has questions. And a young man may experience a serious doubts, and he walks around thinking as the Einzikim is Shugunav Develt. He's the only one plagued by these questions. None of his friends deal with it. None of his colleagues deal with it. None of his siblings deal with it. None of his rebbies deal with it. None of his teachers deal with it. And therefore, if he wants to fit in, he has to repress it. He has to deny it. Either he denies it to himself, or he denies it to other people. He represses it, so even he is the denial of it. That's one approach. There's an opposite approach. An opposite approach is don't deny it. Talk about it to everybody. Then make a website. Then make a blog. Then write a book. And make sure that anybody you meet, you explain to him how you and Columbus discovered the United States of America. They say there was once an Altaid who came from Europe. So he had to become a citizen. So the man asked him, which year did you come to the U.S.? So instead of saying 1941, by mistake, he got confused. So he says 1491. So the man on the other side of this was also an Alta Yid. The clerk, he says, you know, it's a pity you should have waited a year. You could have come with Columbus. <laughs> right? So this guy, this guy came with Columbus and he discovered America. And everyone has to know about his doubts. And of course, he realizes that all Orthodox Jews are repressed. And Nebach, they're all in a cult, and nobody thinks, and he's the only one who thinks, and therefore he has these doubts, and now he's going to teach and enlighten every walking Jew on Muncie, and Lakewood, and Williamsburg, and Borough Park, and even Chicago, Toronto, and maybe one day Meir Sharim and Bnei Brak. The great ideas that he discovered, although I doubt it, the Satmer Rebbe, the Divrei Yoyal, when he once came to Meir Sharim, when he visited Eretz Yisrael, in the old days, he came to Meir Sharim and he saw the walls of Meir Sharim. You know, those walls look like they were from before the Chet Sadas. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the Satmer Rav says, he says, I don't understand. How is it that these walls don't fall down? And he says it's from the glue of all the signs. <laughs> Which was quite insightful, I have to say. It's the glue of the signs that hold those walls. So this guy has to penetrate the wall, but the first symptom is that he becomes alienated to Judaism, either in public or in private, either in Machshava and sometimes in Dibur and Maisa. The truth is, if somebody understands what Yiddishkeit is and what Amun is, both of these approaches are deeply flawed. You say you have Sveikas in Amunah, you have doubts in Amunah. Let me tell you, my dear brother, you don't have doubts in Amunah. You have doubts in Seichel. You don't have doubts in Amunah. You can't have doubts in your Amunah. Your soul is one with the source. Your soul's eyes experience the source. Your Amunah is fully intact, my dear child. You have doubts in Seichel. You know what? That's good. That's normal. You have a mind. You have questions. The world is a tough place. Life is mysterious. Pain is real. There's a lot of questions. A lot of things unresolved. You have questions. And even while you have questions, your emuna is not affected or contaminated. Can you walk and talk simultaneously? Of course. How? How? You know why? You walk with your legs 
and you talk with your mouth. You can have questions in your mind and you still believe in your soul. We ask with our mind. We believe with our soul. And we walk while we talk. We believe while we ask. When somebody says, I believe, what he's really saying is, I have a soul and I experience my soul. When somebody says, I don't believe, what they're saying is, I don't experience my soul and therefore I don't experience God. When I say I don't believe, I'm not detached from God. You can't be detached from God. I am detached from myself. I am detached from a certain plane of myself. Not from all of me, but from a certain dimension of myself. So what am I supposed to do? The first thing I'm supposed to do, you're supposed to do, is stop thinking you're Meshuggah. Stop thinking you're the only one. Stop thinking that your life and future and destiny is destroyed and that God hates you and you're going to burn in the cosmic barbecue. Stop that. There are concealments. There are questions. Questions are natural. That's how God created the world. There should be concealment and questions. Oilam says the Gemara comes from the word helam, which means concealment. By definition, the meaning of world is there is a concealment, especially when you're in Golas and exile. So this is part of the process of life. People have questions, people have doubts. That's a fact. The Tanya says in chapter 29, and in other Svarim it says, even a Benini, whom he defines as a Jew who never sinned and will never sin, and will never sin, can have Sveikas in Amunah, because he or she has an animal soul consciousness in them. And to look at this person and say, how do you speak like this? You're worse than the worst. You're the scum of the earth. It's not true, it's unfair. And you're probably dealing with your own insecurities. And it's the best way you're dealing with your doubts. If you don't have an answer, say, I have to research it. Say, let me ask somebody. Come to these shiurim. What do you have to scream at him? You're allowed to say. A teacher, a yeshiva came to me and he asked me a question about a sugi we were both teaching. So I said, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. So he says, but what should I tell my students? I said, tell them the truth. You don't know. He says, that's what you do? I said, of course I do that. When I don't know, I say, I don't know. He says, I can't do that. I said, why not? He said, because when you say, I don't know, they don't believe you. When I say, I don't know, they're going to believe me. I said, you deserve the Nobel Prize for that, or at least an Oscar maybe. They're going to believe me. I said, what's wrong? First of all, what's wrong if they believe you? (laughs) And do you really think that they think you know? Trust me, they know you don't know more than you don't know that you don't know. Halavai, you would know that you don't know 2% of what they know that you don't know. You would already know much more than you think you know. Does that make sense? Okay. Right, right. You're not Meshuggah. People have questions, it's all right. You have sveikas and you say, on the other hand, you don't have to take your doubts so seriously. You don't have to allow your doubts to define your whole future. You need to remove the concealment. You need answers. Sometimes there are things that are blocking your soul. You may have, pain. You may have a lot of pain. You may have serious questions. You may have emotional questions. When those layers are removed, you will see that the... Pure waters of Amuna will flow. And the main thing is, I want you to know, my child, that you have Sveikis in your mind. But with all of your Sveikis, you are still the holiest person. You're still completely one. The Amuna in the depth of your Neshama burns 
with a permanent glow, even if you're not conscious of it. You are holy in this aspect, just like Moshe Rabbeinu. This is what a Jew is. Ru'usa deliba. Don't ever doubt and delegitimize yourself. Don't put yourself down. You have sveikas and seichel. Granted, you don't have sveikas and amuna. Your amuna is wholesome. It's just covered. It's plugged. So we have to help you. You want to help yourself reveal it and exercise it. But don't dismiss yourself. And don't delegitimize yourself. And don't start thinking that you're the lowest of the low. It's completely untrue. In fact, there's nothing you can do to delete your amuna. Because Amunah is not acquired through your reason. It comes from the fact that Hashem in His full presence exists in you. Or you exist in Him. Your, eye, your soul has eyes. Your soul is a part of Him. So now, let's see how our body teaches us about this. About all of these steps to be able to see Emunah. One of the great Klalim in Yiddishkeit, and one of its beautiful ideas is, biology and spirituality mirror each other. Or to put it simply, the body and the soul are synchronized. If you want to study your soul, study your body. Mipsari echze eleka, Iyoiv said. Job said, from my flesh I can perceive Hashem. When you study your own biological makeup, you can understand also your neshama. So, you have two source sheets. Any extras over there? Shemshin, any extras? Kens McGavin? Ataza, you look with him, yeah? Okay. You have two source sheets. Take the one, take the one with the blank white, the white blank, not the one with the checkered diamonds, the one with the white blank. We're going to discover now something called a blind spot. The blind spot we're going to be discussing is borrowed from neurobiology. And let me explain it to you. Don't get afraid if you hear words that you haven't heard in a few years. Everything will be clear and certainly the results will be very clear. Hashem. The eye of every human being is designed in a way that there is a significant hiatus in the field of vision. There is a significant block in the field of vision. This is due to the fact that there is an absence. There are missing some of the what's called photosensitive cells, photoreceptors, in a specific region of the eye. We have what's called the retina, which is the layer of cells at the back of the eye that are responsible for our vision. In those layer of cells, there's a significant region, region in which there is an absence of photosensitive cells. The photosensitive cells are distributed throughout the retina, throughout those layers of cells responsible for our vision at the back of the eye. But there is one point... It's known as the point of origin of the optic nerve. And over there, we don't have the cell that can receive the gift of sight. This spot, it's known in biology as the optic disc, this spot lacks photoreceptors. This spot in the retina 
lacks photoreceptors. So therefore, we are blind literally to any image that falls on that part of the eye. So when any image that you observe meets that particular region of the eye, we simply cannot see. We become blind. We simply cannot experience it. We are literally blind to it. This blind spot is literally a hole in our vision. It's about the size of a quarter at a distance of one foot from each eye. So when any image falls in that particular area, I become blind to that image. Let's easily appreciate the existence of it and the extent of this blind region. We're going to perform a little experiment using the diagram. So you're not going to believe what I said. You don't want to believe what I said. You're going to see what I said. Or actually, more accurately, you're going to not see what I said through your blind spot. So take your, uh, take your, uh, your diagram here. Turn it in a way that the two dots are aligned horizontally. Not vertically, but horizontally. The small dot should be to your left. The small dot to your left. Now... I'm going to tell you what to do and then do it. It may take you a few times to hop. No social pressure here. Okay, no social pressure. If you don't hop it, it's not because it doesn't exist. It's because you're nervous and you don't have patience. Do it again. Do it slowly. After a few times, you will see what I'm saying. This is what you're going to do after I finish. Close your left eye and close it very tight, but really tight. You shouldn't be able to see through it. Okay? Hold the page at your arm's length, right in front of your face, but remember that your left eye is closed. Then, steer at the small black spot on the left of the diagram, and of course you're steering only with your right eye, and then slowly move the page towards you while you're steering on the left dot of the diagram. At some point, around one foot from your face, the large black circle will fall on your blind spot. At some point, the large black circle will fall on your blind spot, your aptic disc, and it will consequently disappear from your vision. Go ahead. Right? It's fascinating. You go a little closer, it comes back. You go a little further, it comes back. In that spot, it's not there. MS? MS? For what machst du nicht? You can't argue with this. This is not a Muna. This is not a Muna. You don't need no Muna. This is pure, pure eyesight. Unless you say we're all crazy. Maybe we're all crazy, which may be true. Okay, Rabbi Sai. <laughs> Recess is over. <laughs> you all get an extra can of Coke and some more chalent for doing the experiment so well. We're not finished yet. What? Now come with me. Come with me 
and I have a big shaila v'im toimar, v'im toimar. You all drove here tonight, but you weren't the only ones driving. Pilots are flying planes as I speak. Surgeons are operating on patients as I speak. Cabbies are flying through what is tonight the only night with no traffic in Manhattan. And not one of them, not the pilot, not the surgeon, not the cabbie, not the driver, observes any hole in his or her vision. Why is it not? We had to do this whole experiment for any of you to even be aware of this. If any object, when it reaches that particular point, hits the blind spot, and both eyes have the same property, although it has to be in the right region, why don't we experience holes in our vision regularly, especially people who are so focused on vision, like pilots, like surgeons, like drivers. Yet it does not happen. We all know if a pilot or a driver or a surgeon will temporarily go like this or like this. If we close our eyes, literally, what will happen? The surgeon will not be able to see. He will see nothing. He is enveloped in darkness. Well, this is exactly what happens in the blind spot. It's like the eye shuts off. It shuts, it, it closes. It's like this. And yet, none of us are ever aware of this. There's never a hole. There's never a gap. There's never a question. Hey, what just happened? We're always seeing everything perfectly. With glasses, without glasses. Unless, of course, somebody who has another problem, Khalila, with their sight. But generally, we don't have this issue. Why is this? And the answer is, I'm going to show you that each of our brains is azashakran. Oi, do we get fooled. You think that nobody plays games with you in life, huh? You don't let anybody play games with you. But let me show you a game that your brain plays with you. 24 hours, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. You see? Let me explain to you something. The brain does not like the fact that it has gaps in its vision. It doesn't sit well with the brain. When the brain realizes that it can't see, the brain is like, I don't like this. I need to see. I have to know. The brain actually does not like gaps in its vision. Therefore, in order to present us with an uninterrupted field of vision, the brain artificially and falsely paints over the blind spot with an image that it believes belongs there. What did you see when the circle disappeared? What did you see? White. Why? The brain is smart. The brain is brilliant. The brain asks like this. I don't see what's there. So how do I know what to put there? I look what's right around it. And I take a picture of what's right around it and I place it there. Don't believe me. Go to your next diagram and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Do exactly the same thing. Remember, close your left eye and bring the page closely. And look now, what will be in the place of the black circle this time? And you will see it will change completely. The two black circles in this picture are identical in size, shape, and position to those in the first. The only difference is in the appearance of the region surrounding the large black circle to the right. 
When you perform the same experiment, what happens? The large circle will disappear. In this case, it will, will be replaced by a diamond checkered pattern rather than by a white plain by a plain white field. You see that? Do it slowly until you see it. So I ask you a question. If you have a blind spot in both situations, why is it by the first blind spot it got replaced with plain white? And in the second blind spot it got replaced with checkered diamonds. If it's blind spot, it's blind because the brain is playing a game with you. The brain is telling you that you're seeing white. It's not white. You can't see. But the brain doesn't want to admit asanama audits. The brain doesn't want to admit ignorance. The brain doesn't want to shake you up and say, oh, I can't see. So the brain says, you know what? We'll replace it. And that's why in the second diagram, the brain, repla- the brain replaces it with that which is around it. What's around it? Checkered diamonds. You got it over there? You see it? Okay. So now, now let's see how this truth reflects, reflects and summarizes our discussion. What is really in that place? If the brain was honest, what should have it said? It should have said three words. What? I don't know. Sorry. So you'll say, what do you mean you don't know? I see everything. I'm a master of vision. The brain says, I don't have the vessel. I don't have the receptacle. I don't have the photo. I don't have the photosensitivity, pun intended, to be able to grasp it. I just don't have it. So you tell the brain, so why why do you make believe you have it? The brain says, because it's too difficult. It's too painful. It's too puzzling. It's too challenging to be able to concede that gap. It will interrupt your schedule. And perhaps the brain is right. The brain is really trying to be nice to us. The brain is trying to make us feel that we're in control of our lives and that we see everything. So this is it. Reason is the ability to see things. And it's a wonderful ability. Reason, however, encounters moments and experiences which we might call the blind spot. The blind spots of life. It's very hard for reason to say, I don't know. I'm not in control of it. I don't understand it. So therefore, reason will try to manipulate every experience to try to fit into its box. It will change the color. It will create new realities as long as it makes sense. Emuna is the truth of the blind spot. It's the ability to be able to grasp that which logic says is not my field. I can't grasp. So when I see something in life, when I experience something in life, it's two different experiences, reason and faith. Reason wants everything to be understood by the structure of reason. And it will try to manipulate everything to fit in. 
But Amunah is a gift. And Amunah says, you know what? I don't have to go there. I can really trust my soul and experience God at this moment beyond reason. Sometimes full of paradox. Sometimes full of mystery. And I don't have to figure it out. You know what was the first blind spot in history? Kachna as bincha as yichidcha asher ahavta as yitzchak. Yesterday you told me ki b'yitzchak yikari lachazera. Yitzchak will father a nation for eternity. The whole world will be blessed by your family. Today you told me take the boy before he married, before he has children and offer him as an offering. Reason, reason, reason. Avram could have said, I'll make a pshat. I'll make a chalois. I'll make a gedder. God didn't mean this. He didn't mean that. Maybe yesterday I didn't understand. He could have done that in order not to deal with the blind spot. But Avram Avinu gave his children the gift of Amuna. The gift of Amuna means it's not really my business to figure it out rationally. And yet, it doesn't weaken my relationship at all. Because we're one. I'm there with you. I experience it. That's what we mean when we speak about pintalayid. I asked one somebody, what does a pintalayid mean? He says, the yid, the yid inside. I said, why don't we speak about pintala Irish? He says, Pintala Yid means I come from Yidin, so I have a Yiddish gefil. So I said, why don't we ever hear about the Pintala Chinese, the Pintala Japanese, a Hotecha gefil. He also has ancestors. What is it? What is it? This is not just history. It's the blind spot that can be comfortable with the blind spot because it's not making sense of life in terms of reason. It's experiencing life in terms of infinity. It never negates reason. It never mocks reason. And it never despises reason. It transcends, it transcends reason. Jewish faith means getting in touch with your soul that knows God already without needing any proof, not because it's negating intellect, but it's transcending it and this exists in every single Jew, even he or she who is unconscious of it. And I have to conclude with a story that I heard from the person himself. I have a friend, a colleague, his name is Rabbi Ephraim Silverman. Rabbi Ephraim Silverman is the ambassador of Chabad, the Shliach of Chabad, to Marietta, Georgia. Late one night, Rabbi Silverman told me the story. He got a call in the middle of the night. The man on the other line said, this is Ken Wilson speaking. Please come over to my house now, Rabbi. My wife is on her deathbed. She wants to see you, Rabbi. It's urgent. Ken Wilson asks Rabbi Ephraim Silverman in the middle of a mitzvah, a regular night, in the middle of the night. Well, Rabbi Silverman, I guess like most Chabad Shluchim, have no working hours. Somehow the Lubavitcher Rebbe forgot to write in the contract nine to six. So basically it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He gets dressed, he gets into the car, he has the address, and he drives over to Ken 
Wilson's home. He's rushed into the bedroom. On the bed lay a young woman. She's in her early 40s and she can barely talk. Her name was Lisa, Lisa Wilson. She contracted breast cancer sometime earlier. All the treatments did not help and she lay very ill in her home, in her bedroom. Lisa turns to him and she says, Rabbi, I am Jewish, but I married out. My husband is a wonderful man and we have a good marriage, but there is a part of me that he could simply never understand. It's not his fault. It's the nature of reality. There's a certain part of my life that he just doesn't relate to. My time is short. We have a a son, Matthew. Matthew is 10 years old. He's my only child. He will be orphaned from his mother shortly. That is why I summoned you tonight. I beg you, promise me, that you will bar mitzvah my son and guarantee that he gets some type of Jewish education. Rabbi Silverman is standing there in a bedroom near Ayyidish Imam. He has a tear in his eye and he gives her the promise. She's relieved. There's a glow on her face. She's relaxed. He wishes her good night. He blesses her. He blesses the family and he goes home. The next morning he finds out that Lisa died that night, a short while after he left her home. Matthew was 10 years old. Two years passed. He's 12. Rabbi Ephraim Silverman did not forget his vow to this dying Jewish mother. When Matthew turns 12, he takes a telephone and he calls Ken Wilson. He calls the father. And he says, your son Matthew will be bar mitzvah in a year. I want to prepare him for his bar mitzvah. The father is very cold. He says, Rabbi, I'm not Jewish. I don't think it's important anymore. I remarried. My first marriage was to a Jewish wife. My second marriage is to a Christian woman. Matt is growing up in a completely non-Jewish home. There's no Hanukkah. There's no Yom Kippur. There's no Jewishness. His father is not Jewish. His stepmother is not Jewish. I don't really see the value or the need for a mitzvah. No. In the inimitable Chabad style, Rabbi Silverman knew that this is the time to start working. You don't just say, okay, thank you very much. He wouldn't let him go. He says, listen, Ken, if you were Matt and you will become an adult one day and you will ask about your mother and then you will find out and ask about your mother's last night and you will ask your father or another relative or a friend Did my mother have ever a last wish, a dying wish? And you will discover that your mother, your wife, did ask for one thing, that you, her son, has a bar mitzvah. And you would be that boy. Would you ever forgive yourself for not demanding that your mother's wish is fulfilled? You cannot betray your first wife that way. This was her last wish moments before she died. Mr. Wilson consented. He said, you're right. Rabbi Silverman told me he began learning with this boy, Matthew, for a full year. They were learning Torah. 
They were learning Aleph Beis. They were learning Chumash. They were learning Emunah. They were learning Halacha. They were learning stories. They were learning history. He had a lot to catch up for in one year. Rabbi Silverman and his wife, Rabbi Tzirachel, arranged for a beautiful bar mitzvah ceremony, Shabbos in their shul. And I've been in their shul a few times. I spoke there. It's magnificent. It's huge. It's splendid. And they arranged and paid for a huge suda for a big feast in their shul in Marietta. Matthew got an aliyah. He was called up to the Torah. He wrapped. He put on tefillin. He gave a moving, beautiful speech. Apshetl, Advar Torah, of inspiration. And he becomes a full-fledged member of the Jewish people. I asked Rabbi Silverman, I said, Ephraim, tell me, who attended the Bar Mitzvah? Who was the guest list? He says, naturally, all of Mr. Wilson's relatives, his new wife's relatives, they all came for Shulat Shabbos morning. Very few of the deceased mom's relatives attended, very few. So basically, he tells me that the Chabad house, that Shabbos morning, was overflowing with Christians, experiencing... Matt Wilson's Bar Mitzvah, with a few Jews. He had a minion of Jews attending as well. And he says, basically, that Shabbos, there were lots of leftovers. <laughs> today, today, Matthew comes to Shul on Shabbos, on Yom Tif, puts on tefillin, learns Torah. <laughs> Here is a woman, Lisa, absolutely secular, married out, did not raise her child Jewish. What was her last wish on her deathbed? She said, my husband is a wonderful man, but there's an akuda, there's something he cannot detect in me. Not because he doesn't want to, but because we're different. What came out at that moment? She didn't sit at a seminar, at a workshop, She didn't go through discovery classes. She didn't go through reasonable doubts and questions. She didn't go to Shiurim. She didn't even finish Daf Yoimi or Tamid Besimcha or Dirsha. What emerged at that moment was Emuna Tahira. Raina Emuna. Nishtva Pachket. Mitzaychel Anushi. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.